What's up everyone, my name is Jessica Rice. I'm the Communications Director here at Renaissance Church. Very grateful to welcome you here today. Uh, it's Palm Sunday, which means it's the start of Holy Week and we've got some really great things planned for you all on Good Friday and of course on Easter Sunday. Our creative team is putting in a lot of effort to produce something that's truly just a can't miss special online service. So make sure that you're sharing it with your friends online, inviting people to join you to watch it. And uh, before we get into the message today, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear from you. God, would you help me to decrease so that you might increase. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my mother's from Kingston, Jamaica, born and raised. And even though I grew up in the US, I spent summers going there as a kid. And now that I have a family of my own, I love taking them there to experience this place that I love. We go quite regularly as a family. And I think one of the things that I really love about stepping off the plane in Jamaica is just how very different the culture is from my day-to-day -day normal life here in New York City, right? So the people talk different. The way they talk to each other is quite different. The music is different. The ingredients and the food are different. Uh, it's just a different vibe all around. But you know what's really different in Jamaica? the driving, okay? The driving is very different in Jamaica. Why is that, Jessica? Well, first, as opposed to driving on the right, they drive on the left, you know, former British colony and all. So that's a little different. And then also, like, as an ethic in Jamaica, you have to overtake. Like that, you have to pass people on the road. If you're not, you're like, Maybe your car is about to break down, something's wrong, I don't know, but overtaking is a part of the culture. And so are small, winding back roads through country hills that you would be certain two cars absolutely cannot fit on, and yet somehow they managed to do that. So now, on a recent trip that my family and I took, we were going to the house of a family friend he lived up in the mountains uh, in a house that he built on a plot of land that he'd inherited from his father. He found out he had this land and said, I'm gonna put a house up there. But because it's Jamaica, because it's the mountains and the country, this is very far from planned subdevelopment, subdivision life that we're used to in the US. So much so that there's no street signs guiding us to where we need to go. And so the directions for getting to this house in the mountains were more like this. It was more like, okay, so you're going to go down the road and after you've gone for a time, you're gonna to come to a tire yard and at the yard you, you go so, you go so. And then you go down the road, down over the hill and you're gonna to come to the small cart with the little lady who sells the pepper shrimp. And that, that is when you know you go so. And so hopefully you kept track of all of that. We were clearly confused and just hoping that we would make it. And we did. But all of this being said, there's no signs. There's only markers. And when I think about navigating the Bible, 
I think it's way less like navigating streets here in New York City where we have grids and we have street signs and things are made clear. And it's way more like navigating to a house in the mountains where there's no signs, just markers. There's no signs that say, this is exactly what you need to do and how you should do it. There are markers though that we can look for that hopefully guide us and let us know that we're on the right path. And today, I wanna to take you guys on a journey. Unfortunately, it's not in the mountains of Jamaica, as lovely as that would be, but it is an exploration of something that I think is really important that we talk about. It's something that I'm sure is a term you've been seeing a lot on your social media feeds, in news headlines, and in articles that you've been reading. I want to talk today about solidarity. My guess is that all of us maybe hear that word and have different thoughts about what it means. Um, my hope is that I'm not going to present a formula or a checklist for how we do solidarity, but that we'll look at some markers in scripture that can hopefully help us and guide us to know we're heading in the right direction so that we can hopefully pursue biblical, gospel-centered, Holy Ghost-filled solidarity. Can I get an amen? Yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> so what is solidarity? The dictionary would define solidarity as an awareness of shared interests and a united effort. The word's origin is from the French language and it means sturdy, firm, and undivided. As we think about advocating for other marginalized groups, um, as we think about stopping Asian hate, as we think about advocating that Black Lives Matter, these are all good things to strive for, solidarity for these causes. And at the same time, I think in more recent years of my own walk with Jesus, I've learned that I should really learn to take words that are commonplace and buzzy in culture and examine those words in relationship to Jesus. That if Jesus is as he says he is in John 8, that he is the light of the world, that I should hold the things that I say I value up against him, almost as if I were to take an envelope and hold it up against a light so that I could hopefully see the contents more clearly. If what I should do, if what you should do is solidarity, I think it begs the question, what does solidarity look like to Jesus? What family is biblical solidarity? Well, first, I think biblical solidarity isn't just about what you believe, but rather how your beliefs lead you to live. I wanna say that again. Biblical solidarity is not just about what you believe, but how your beliefs lead you to live. In traditional Christian circles, it seems that we tend to see solidarity around beliefs, right? There's over the century been different creeds created and statements of faith created that Christians align themselves around, different groups of Christians. And truly, what we believe, it does matter. But as the writer James writes in scripture, he says, 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Y'all, did you listen to how our brother James came for people in this scripture, like came for our necks? Okay, he says, you have faith, great. You believe in the right things, great. Even demons in the pit of hell believe some of the right things. The point isn't about what we believe and getting solidarity around statements and doctrines. It's about what we believe leading us to live in a certain way, that we can have a faith that works. Now, that's Christian circles, but in more socially liberal groups of people, solidarity really is the thing these days. I mean, we've got protests, marches, a real desire for action. And to keep it real with all of you, I am really encouraged by that. I mean, there's so much passion to see injustice made right and to see people made in God's image feel safe. But there are some issues in this camp that I think sometimes get overlooked. The first is burnout, right? That because we live in an age where we're bombarded with information and news of so many atrocities, we easily get overwhelmed sometimes to the point of not doing more than your passing Instagram post advocacy. And because internet shaming and outrage have become the thing, I also worry that a lot of people who are doing the right things might be doing those things for the wrong reasons. I think most of us care when we hear about a tragedy or someone suffering, but I think social media has warped so many of our minds to not only be concerned about people who are suffering, but also concerned about whether others see just how caring and moral we are. We're afraid, quite honestly, of being labeled as passive or silent or bigoted. And so we head to Instagram, we post our advocacy graphics, we check the box, assured of our moral rightness. I want us to turn to a passage of scripture today found in the book of Luke, chapter 10. It's one that you're probably familiar with about the Good Samaritan. I'm gonna pick it up in verse 25. It says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him, how do you read it? He, the law expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, let me set the stage really quick. This passage, it starts with the message, a mention, excuse me, of an expert in religious laws. He would have been very well versed 
in Old Testament teachings. And we're catching him in this moment as he's approaching Jesus to set him up and test him. See, Jesus was always welcoming people who disobeyed religious laws, really to the chagrin of all the religious leaders of the day. He was always welcoming people who were outcasts in society. He was so friendly to them that this particular religious scholar was suspicious. And he wanted to expose Jesus as someone who didn't really respect the law of God or respect the importance of obeying moral law. So the law expert asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to become saved or accepted by God? He expected Jesus, because of his attitude towards sinners, to say something like, oh, it really doesn't matter, actually. You know, as long as you just go to God, tell him that you want him to accept you, he will. He accepts everyone. The law expert is looking for his gotcha moment to expose Jesus as a false teacher, but Jesus, as he often does, has the upper hand. He comes back at the law expert, responding to his question with a question, which, by the way, am I the only one who has the friend that when you ask them a probing question, they respond to you with a question? Like, when you say, yeah, so did you decide to end things with old boy? They're like, uh, did I decide, did I, did I decide to end things with old boy? Oh, okay, okay. What Jesus is doing in this passage is not like that. He's in no way evasive, but instead he's setting things up to reveal truth. He comes back with a question and says, well, tell me, what is in the law? How do you read it? The law expert gives the typical response for the day. Most believe that the moral law of God could be summarized in these two lines. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's keep going in the text. But wanting to justify himself, this is verse 29, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by, on the other side. Now, because Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level, the trip out of Jerusalem always meant kind of going through mountains, that trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what that meant as well is that there were robbers who could often hide in the mountains and the rocks and the desert along the way. The priests in the story would have been a respected religious leader involved with the sacrifices and maintenance of the temple. He would have been like your lead pastor of today. And as you see, he passed by. The Levite would have also been a respected religious leader who assisted the priests with all kinds of different duties. And so maybe he was like your deacon in the church. And as we see, he passed by too. Now, in verse 33, we pick it back up with, 
But a Samaritan on his journey came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, the law expert said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Here in the Acts of the Samaritan, who happened to be the least likely of the three to be the hero, we see a picture of biblical solidarity. Now, why was the Samaritan the least likely of the three? Well, a little bit of history and context. The Samaritans and the Jews were pretty much known to be sworn enemies. Jewish people were very big on ethnic purity and Samaritans were considered to be half-breeds. Um, and so, for that reason, there had been a lot of animosity that developed between the two groups of people over a course of years. And so, if there was anyone who would see a Jewish man laying half-dead on the ground while you're on your way somewhere with some place to be, it would be the Samaritan who would say, I'm actually commanded to hate this person, not stop and help this person. But biblical solidarity, we see from this unlikely hero, does three things. These are the markers I want all of us to be looking for in our lives as we pursue biblical solidarity. One, it has compassion. Two, it costs. And three, it perseveres. Let's start with compassion. In his parable, Jesus said that each man passing by on the road saw the one who had been robbed and left for dead. But it was only the Samaritan who looked at the man and had compassion. And what is compassion? Compassion's a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. So compassion is not just feeling sad for someone, which is where I feel many of us tend to stop. Compassion is also really wanting to ease the suffering that we see, to put our love and faith in God into action. You know, one of the things that must have burned these religious leaders up and something that honestly really bothers my inner Pharisee is that in the story Jesus tells, the Samaritan never questions why the beaten man was in the situation he was in. Had this been me, if I'm being honest, on the way to the hotel as I'm carrying this dude on my horse or mule, whatever he might have had, I would have been like, bro, you had to know. We all know there's robbers on this road. What were you thinking? Like, why didn't you take the Triborough? 
And, you know, I would have wanted to know why and how he made the decisions that put him in the position that he was in. But the Samaritan doesn't do that. He doesn't ask. He tends to the man's wounds. He takes him to safety and he ensures that he's cared for. When we think about the challenges facing different people in our city, in our country, the list is long. The year has been long. I read in USA Today recently that while more than 500,000 lives have been lost to COVID, that equates to an estimated 5 million people who are grieving the death of a close family member in our country. Jobs have been eliminated. There's mass incarceration, a humanitarian crisis at our southern border, and now a mass shooting that is underscoring a documented rise in attacks against our AAPI brothers and sisters. Health disparities, sexism, racism, xenophobia, housing insecurity, Compassion for people doesn't require an interrogation of whether or not they created their suffering. Compassion seeks well-being first. Compassion is love poured out to someone with no strings attached. And that is biblical solidarity. Biblical solidarity is also costly. The Samaritan gave several of his own things for the sake of the beaten man. He gave wine, oil, time, money. He deviated from whatever plans or ambitions he had for his own journey. Our current culture loves to make statements about everything. And most of the time, I think we're preaching to the choir because we live in these bubbles and in separate places. But rarely do we stand in costly solidarity with people. Making a statement generally isn't very costly. The Samaritan would have had to have risked his own safety to help that man. He could have been jumped by robbers at any moment too. And I wonder, what am I actually risking when I seek to stand in biblical solidarity with people? For us, it might be that we're like the Samaritan and we give material things like money to support different advocacy organizations or make choices to support black, brown, AAPI run businesses. It might be also that we give our time and our pride, that we go beyond armchair activism and reach out to people we know are suffering and navigating trauma. We might not always get it right, and our suffering friends might not always have the capacity to talk to us, but we make an effort to listen and to learn from and to mourn with those who mourn. And you know what else is risky? Examining all the ways in our own lives that we've harbored anti-Asian thoughts and sentiments and confess those sins. I saw an extremely incredible example of this after George Floyd's murder. A white male colleague and friend of mine, he shared a series of posts on his social media page, processing the different biases and prejudice he'd had over the years. And I call it amazing, not only because it cost him a lot of comfort to put himself out that way, 
but that the comments he received from other middle-aged white people, people in his circle, it showed that they too were prompted to do the same, to examine themselves. Whatever the case, whatever it is that we give, if it's biblical solidarity that we want, it can't just be a token gesture. Now finally, the third thing, I think biblical solidarity we see perseveres. In his parable, Jesus says, the Samaritan went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you whatever you, extra you spend. Biblical solidarity doesn't just offer up tweets about thoughts and prayers. Biblical solidarity doesn't do what I'm sometimes guilty of, saying I'll pray for someone and instead getting caught up in the busyness of my day. It doesn't make token gestures and assume someone else will finish the job. Biblical solidarity is determined and committed over time. I saw the clearest picture of this in my own life more than 10 years ago when I found myself in a situation I never anticipated. I was suddenly widowed at the age of 26. And immediately following that loss, there was an onslaught of calls and texts and visits and meals, all the things. Kind of like how after a tragedy, there are headlines and posts and protests and lots of zeal. But six weeks later, a lot of those gestures had stopped. Things got quiet. The world kept spinning, life kept moving. And so it meant so much when three months later, I'd get a card from someone in the mail telling me they were thinking and praying for me. It was those people who would maybe a year later recognize that my Needs might have changed, that I wasn't needing meals every night, uh, but maybe I now needed help fixing up things around my house and they wanted to check in and see how they could be helpful. Those were people who were in it for the long haul, who were committed and determined to persevere with me. Now, here is the good news, friends. This story isn't just about doing right. And it's not just a story about a good Samaritan. It's easy for us to hear Jesus' story and imagine ourselves as the Samaritan. In fact, Jesus says, go and do this. So you might have put yourself in the Samaritan's shoes. And we want to be the kind of people who would care for others radically. We want to be the hero. But if our only ambition is a moral high ground, or to be the hero, I'm sad that we'll come up short all the time. Instead, our pursuit of biblical solidarity should flow out of knowing that we are that man who was stripped, beaten, and left for dead on the road. Our lives were ebbing out, and our only hope was an act of free grace. Jesus himself, 
He is telling the story of himself, the unlikely savior that appeared and was shunned by his own people, who at the cost of his life went out of his way for us. I am the helpless man who was beaten, bruised, left on my own with no way of saving myself. I was an enemy of God, like the Jewish man was an enemy of the Samaritan. But he saw us, he had compassion for us, not just sadness, but a desire to alleviate our sufferings. We deserve the opposite, but we get grace. Now, we can hope all we want to pursue biblical solidarity, but we will never love people and stand with people and be united with people like God has created us to until we know how we've been loved by God. I want to end us with these words from Paul in Romans 5 and encourage you to meditate on this this week. It's chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would remind us of this gospel truth, that we were helpless, that we could not save ourselves. And still, at the cost of your life, even though we didn't deserve it, you died in our place. Help us, God, to love others in this way, to have compassion, to live sacrificially, and to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.